I had one woman who was arrested 10 times on the word of her police officer ex-partner and the force in question ended up finding that in a misconduct investigation into him uh, that he had misled courts and and misled the police uh, intentionally in order to have his wife arrested, but said because he did it in his private life, uh, he had no misconduct case to answer, which is just shocking, really. Alexandra Heal is an investigative reporter whose work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism on domestic abuse by police officers won her the Private Eye Paul Foote Award 2020. Her research discovered close to 90 women with terrible stories of domestic abuse by police officers and the shocking indifference, sometimes even collusion, of fellow officers. Alexandra's reporting has led to lawyers submitting a nationwide super complaint with police regulators. And I called her to find out more of how the story came about. I covered two main topics, policing and domestic abuse, which is what I believe we're going to be talking about today, and also um, global environment, which is very different, but it's something else that I'm really passionate about, and it's really nice to have two kind of main topics and a, a lot of variety as well. Alex, you, you studied journalism at City, is that right? Yeah. So lots of options you could have pursued. Why investigative reporting? I was doing a bit of work for the BBC before I did the Masters. I started with an internship at BBC Brussels, uh, their newsroom, um, as part of my degree, which was at Politics and French. And so I did that internship and I was working on breaking news and then I was doing some freelancing for their Paris bureau when I lived there. And I really enjoyed it, but I found that I wasn't so keen on just working on the breaking news the constant role of you know making a package and then making another package for the 10 o'clock news and then another one in the morning and just the constant reporting and obviously that's really important journalism I don't want to denigrate that in any way it's so important but I for me personally I felt like I'd rather work on more longer term projects and also on stuff where you feel like you are revealing it's kind of a bit of an arrogant thing really it's like where you feel like you're you know you're revealing new stuff and you're helping to have some sort of impact. I remember being, I think I was at uh, uni when all of the stuff came out about the Rotherham sexual exploitation scandal. And I remember the Times, I think, had a big role in in reporting on that and, and exposing that. And I remember thinking it would be really nice to be working on stuff where you're kind of bringing new information to the table. And so that's why I decided to do the Masters in Investigative Journalism. When I was doing my master's, we had to do an investigation um, as our final project. And I had been talking to a family friend who had told me that she knew somebody who had been abused at home by a police officer partner. Uh, And this woman had reported it to the the force in question who he worked for, and they had done absolutely nothing about it, apparently, just just dismissed it out of hand and not taken it seriously. Uh, So this made me wonder, oh, I I wonder if that's something that's more widespread. Um, So I decided to look into it uh, as my final project for my master's. That the woman uh, who was friends with the family friend, she didn't want to speak to me. But so I just kind of set about um, calling lots of domestic abuse charities and police action lawyers asking if they'd come across anybody it had happened to. And uh, there turned out to be quite a few cases. So we published the first story last May. Uh, so May 2019, that was. Uh, and then I've been reporting on it since. 
but I've been looking into it for about over two years now. I had done most of the research for the first story by the time I finished the Masters. And then that summer that I, you know, like a few weeks after I finished, I started working at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. I started there on a two month fellowship sponsored by Google. It's called the Google Data Journalism Fellowship. And I, so I took it to them because the Bureau had already done a bit of work on domestic abuse refuge funding. And so I thought, oh, it might fit in with their remit. So I pitched it to them. And then they helped me to kind of get it into a, a shape that was publishable. So it took another year to publish from when I started. But that, was, that wasn't because I needed to do more reporting. It was because of various legal and obstacles with my case studies, legal cases and things like that. How did you manage to get the, the data that you needed for this story? I submitted freedom of information requests to every police force in the country, uh, asking for the number of reports they'd had of police perpetrated domestic abuse and the outcomes of those reports. And most of the forces, I, I think I got replies with substantial data from about 38 out of 47 or 8 forces um, so I, I did get quite a substantial response rate um, and at the time so that was over 3 years the data was and it was 700 reports of uh, police perpetrated domestic abuse over 3 years and a very a small fraction of them ended up in any sort of discipline or uh, sanction and also obviously that's probably just the tip of the iceberg because if you imagine the amount of people who would never come forward to report it we had some really strong case studies. I had one woman who was arrested 10 times on the word of her police officer ex-partner. And the force in question ended up fi finding that in a misconduct investigation into him, uh, that he had misled courts and and misled the police uh, intentionally in order to have his wife arrested. But said because he did it in his private life, uh, he had no misconduct case to answer, which is just shocking, really. Like, he didn't get dismissed. And, you know, experts we spoke to said, you can't have a police officer who misleads court because what if they would do it on duty? It was really outrageous. And, and we had various case studies that made us think, wow, this is, this is really shocking. But then the data, obviously, was great to back it up and to show that, that widespread kind of low discipline rate. And the conviction rate seemed to be really, like, seemed to be lower than the conviction rate that we calculated for the general population as well. So it just, it just really seemed to be like, you know, case after case that we came across. So the first story, we had seven uh, case studies. And I also would say that the story was really about two things. It was firstly about bad police officers who would the unique uh, situation where a domestic abuser will always intimidate their victims. But if you are a domestic abuser who works for the police, you have so many extra tools at your disposal to intimidate your victims. You know, you can stalk them in marked police cars, you can look them up on police records. You can just threaten, make threats against them that they don't know if it would be true or not, but you can say, oh, you know, all my, all my friends will protect me, I'll get you thrown in prison if you report me. You know, when you're already intimidating someone, they don't know that you're not going to do that. So all of these threats that you can make as a police officer, but then also for the women who did find the courage to report it, it was about the bad forces because they were failing to look into it properly and take it seriously and discipline their, their own officers. I guess a lot of that information you've just explained to us could only have come from case studies. How did you find them? 
The first seven case studies I found from calling domestic abuse charities and refuges, not refuges, but services all over the country. You know, there's lots of local charities and also police action lawyers as well, because some of them were taking action against the police for their failings. Um, so that was the first seven for the first story. And then after that, they I just got email, you know, various emails from people who read the first story and then got in contact with me saying, oh, this has happened to me, this has happened to me. And after the first story was published, I started working with the Centre for Women's Justice, which is a legal organisation, and their solicitors decided to start putting together a super complaint, which is a nationwide legal challenge against the police to... Uh, well, it's not a legal challenge in court, but it's a legal mechanism, uh, a complaint against institutional issues that are widespread in policing, not just applicable to one force. So basically, various women had contacted me after the first story. They had a few cases of their own. So by the time that le- the super complaint was submitted, they had, I think, about 20 women giving testimonies for that super complaint. And then since that was launched and there was all the coverage around that, they've now had been contacted by over 100 women. I mean, what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome or maybe even that were that were put in your way during the reporting of this story? The first one is the legal implications and concerns around reporting on such topics. Firstly, there's the libel risk. There's always going to be a play when you're, you know, you've got somebody accusing somebody of domestic abuse, in many cases rape, um, really awful crimes. And so in pretty much every case we had to anonymise, even all the women I spoke to, pretty much all of them wanted to go on the record because they felt like they had they had had so little access to justice and their voices had been silenced and they wanted to use this as an opportunity to tell their story and it it was so important to them but we couldn't put them on the record because the libel risk of their ex-partners because of the things we were accusing them of and um, also in terms of in some cases in terms of their safety even if they wanted to go on the record we felt it would be unethical to put them on the record because of the behaviour they described to us of their ex-partners we didn't want to put their safety at risk I mean the women's safety not the ex-partners so there was the kind of libel concerns and then also um, when you're dealing with these sort of stories in many cases there might be cases going through the family court um, and uh, ongoing cases in their own lives which there are so many reporting restrictions and issues around that that you have to navigate and family courts particularly are a real headache and you know many lawyers who are specialist media lawyers don't know how to navigate family courts you have to try and find people who do so that was that's a whole kind of area and then the other one I would say actually is um, it's been a real learning curve for me in terms of working with sources who have been through really awful things and um, who may be vulnerable and have maybe suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that it's really important how you work with people like that and how you go about being a compassionate journalist I think there are a lot of journalists out there Um, There are many good journalists, but there are also a lot who would just um, use them for their story and then drop them. And I think it's really important to not be that type of journalist and to be compassionate in how you how you work with people who are being so brave in telling a story and might have to relive really awful things to tell it to you. Now, I mean, your reporting doesn't reflect well on many police forces did you face any resistance 
uh, from them? Well, to be honest, we didn't. None of them, when we went to them at the right to apply stages, none of them really pushed back. When With the ones where we had case studies of quite damning uh Quite, that were quite damning to the forces in question, they didn't really push back. They just kind of said, oh, it's inappropriate for us to comment on this case. And, you know, maybe it was that, uh, I don't know if it was because they weren't taking it that seriously at first or if it was because they just felt like they couldn't comment, I don't know. But we have had quite a lot of indications that forces are starting to take this more seriously. Since the super complaint was submitted and since the kind of various reporting, we've heard that various forces are planning to introduce new training, um, new policies, new procedures to try and specifically address the issues surrounding police perpetrators of domestic abuse. So it, that's really quite positive. And I think the, the, the really important thing to say is that the vast, vast majority of police officers are really good people they're in it to try and you know it's a really tough job and they're in it to try and do a good thing and help society and the vast majority of misconduct investigators probably would be really really uh, rigorous but I think there's always going to be in any profession there's always going to be bad people and the issue in this case is that you've got in, with any other domestic abuser, the police would be investigating. The police are an outside organisation investigating that person. But in this situation, you've got the police investigating their own, and there's always going to be potential for loyalties or people knowing each other in the forces, and uh, for you know the victims to not have full confidence in what's going on, and therefore there's always going to be this risk of it not being proper so you need to have as many procedures and policies as you can that will give the victims confidence that it is being investigated properly and that's what the Centre for Women's Justice have been really pushing for. I've learned such a great deal about legal implications as I said earlier and I think the other thing is just working with people and speaking to people and sources. I was lucky in that I was able to go and meet for the first story a couple of the women in person and that makes such a big difference going to meet people in person because obviously when you're working uh, in print you could easily just speak to people on the phone and I think if it's somebody that you're going to have an ongoing dialogue with especially over many months that, that it might take for the story to get out I think going to meet people in person makes a huge difference and I really feel like I could t- see the difference in my relationship with sources who I've met in person or those who I haven't just because you've met face to face and you just feel more of a connection with each other and I think that it's really great for engendering trust and that's really important and I think it's just been a baptism of fire really in kind of um, handling sensitive information and everything it was just a huge learning curve for me I think I would say I would be really careful in future to never promise too much to any sources because it took like a year over a year from when I first met the, some of my sources actually one of my stories it took two years to get it out and it was because it firstly delays her end because of various things that she had going on but then it took then there were various delays our end and I think it's about always saying to your sources you know oh we can't guarantee that anything will happen we can't guarantee when this will go out what will in what format whether you'll be on the record whether you won't because I think that's really really important and I think the other thing is just really sensitively working with sources who are very vulnerable we had one woman who was in uh, who did have going through PTSD and we were working with a partner that um, we felt didn't take the care that they should have done when interviewing her and so I kind of learned from that I will 
never if I'm working with a publishing partner which is what the bureau does a lot I will always make sure that I'm the one handling all the communications with my own sources um, and I think that's really important. What were some of your sources hoping would result from your reporting? I think uh, firstly it was some wanted to go on the record and me being kind of fresh into out of journalism school where they say you know wherever you can get sources on the record it makes the story so much better I was you know trying to almost say to them oh would you go on the record and then saying oh you know I think I would and talking a lot about this and then it was only when I kind of got to the bureau and we were talking about the publication and realising, oh, actually, there's no way we could put them on the record because of safety and libel risks, that then I would have to go back and say, oh, actually, no, I, we can't put you on the record and things like that, which is just something I just didn't know when I was just a, a journalism student when I first was started talking to them. But I think it's just not over-promising anything, not over-promising what format it will be, when it will go out. And, and also, I think some of my sources were hoping hoping for massive change straight away as a result of the story or like a huge kind of and, and sometimes the initial days after something is published can be a bit of an anti-climax almost because like it's it takes a while for the impact and the the kind of pickup to follow through and you know it, it, well, it was actually the day after the story was published that the Centre for Women's Justice started talking about the super complaint. So that happened relatively quickly. But then it took months to get the super complaint ready. And, um, you know, the super complaint is now with the police regulators who are investigating it. But we don't know that that they will definitely deliver anything material as a result. And I think it's about being really important as, you know, saying, well, you know, it would be great if it does, but don't, don't hold out for anything tangible that you can see because it might take years and years and also I think part of being a journalist and reporting is about just contributing to the national conversation and I think what we've done here is we've started a national conversation around the specific issue that hadn't really been talked about before there had been reports of individual cases of a police officer abusing or even really horribly murdering their partners but there had never been any conversation around whether that as a like is an issue in itself and the various kind of factors that go into that and surround that and so we've helped to start that conversation and, and just bring awareness into police leaders and police forces and so it might not be that straight away you know we're not gonna if, if we did foi requests tomorrow i don't think that we would necessarily see a huge change in the statistics from from a year ago when i reported it but it's like anything it's like it, it takes years and years to change attitudes doesn't it and i just hope that this reporting has helped with that and so i think it's just about being really upfront with sources about what will what we, you will tangibly see but it's about knowing that talking about stuff is always going to help I think Well just a final question from me do you have any advice for other aspiring investigative journalists? I think the main thing is just to do as much work experience and anything you possibly can and it doesn't have to be investigative I think that's the key thing I, I I did that work at the BBC before joining the Bureau and I did quite a lot of work experience before that which I know obviously is a privileged thing to be able to do and I'm very very aware of that especially I grew up near London so I could go into London to do various work experiences and things like that and a, a lot of the time unfortunately in media these things are unpaid but I think just trying to do as much as you, and it, even if you can't do that just writing for your student paper and doing as 
much as you possibly can because I I know that that was what helped me I think to get the job at the bureau is just showing that you you're willing to put the graft in and so whether it's a work experience placement or if it's just blogging or um you know uh writing for your paper anything that you could do free just from your bedroom and I think the other thing is starting to read newspapers and looking at where the stories are come from that's what something that we were taught in my journalism school and I think would be really useful to start doing earlier every time you read an article where did the journalists get the story from was it from a press release or do, do you think they got it from talking to a source or talking to a contact that's just a really great way to to read a paper and start thinking about that and start thinking about where people get stories from I think that's the main thing because then when you want to start doing investigations the main, the whole thing is about ideas and I remember being on my course and think being absolutely overwhelmed the whole time because I just didn't know where to get you know how would I know what to investigate because if it's on if there's a story about it it's already been investigated how do I know where to start and it was just this kind of constant stress of how am I going to find a story how am I going to know what to investigate and I think just reading newspapers and like and you know online or watching the news and thinking where did they get this story from is a really good place to start. <laughs>